As I, uh, by way of introduction to our sermon time together this morning, I want to just lay out some interesting metrics or facts, if you will, about uh, the ways that we communicate as people. So just uh, try to take in the magnitude of some of these, uh, these uh, statistics uh, as you can. Every second, on average, there are 6,000 tweets tweeted on Twitter which by the end of the day will add up to 500 million, and by the end of the year will add up to 200 billion. Every single day, 300 people take to Facebook and they add something to what's called their Facebook story, and 500 million people do the same thing on Instagram every day. There are approximately 1.5 million podcasts, totaling 34 million episodes, which if you can imagine then the number of minutes that that makes up, that's a lot of content. Here's one of my uh, favorites. Every 60 seconds, 500 hours of video is uploaded to YouTube. Isn't that incredible? By the time I finish this sentence, nearly 1 million texts will be sent worldwide, which by day's end, that will amount to 23 billion texts sent. Now, if you think I'm going to you know, rant and rave about social media, I'm not telling you all of this for that purpose. I'm telling you all of this just to lay out the massive amounts of communication which we engage in, and that, those statistics don't even take into all the other forms that exist as well. You've got newspapers, you've got blogs, you've got radio, you've got television, and all those different types of things. And that also doesn't take into account the daily conversations that we have with the people that are in our lives. All of this to say, most of our days, much of our days are spent by talking to others in one way or another, or others talking to us in one way or another. Now, to add another layer to this never-ending global conversational hum, there is a constant conversation that is taking place within ourselves. We might not notice the continual narrative that runs in our minds because it's always there, but there's no denying its presence. Now, given all of this, given this reality, there's no wonder, is there, with all of the talking going on outwardly and inwardly, that we have such a difficult time discerning good from evil and lies from truth and beauty from all of its opposite forms. And then to add yet another layer of complexity to our experience of constant communication, our spiritual condition prevents us from seeing and hearing truly. We live in a global echo chamber of sinful humanity blinded and deafened by sin. One individual writes, Since our fall in Adam, we by nature are ignorant and blind. We need someone to teach us not only the outward self, but the inward self. But who is sufficient to speak through and cut through the endless chatter? Who can speak in such a way to cut through the lies and the banality and the meaninglessness and the folly? Who can speak in such a way to enlighten our minds and open our eyes and unplug our ears? Who can speak in such a way to interrupt the conversations that we are having with ourselves about our shame and our guilt and our worth and our purpose and our standing with God? There's so much that's being said all of the time. And we might really wonder, does anyone anywhere have anything to say of lasting significance that is worth me paying attention to? Of course there is. The one that Pastor Caleb read about who has the words of eternal life. 
which compels us to continue our Advent series that, that Caleb began last Sunday. A week ago, he stood here and he taught us that the coming of our Savior points us to the offices of Christ, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And as our mediator, our Savior, Jesus fulfills each of these perfectly and continuously. Quoting Beaky and Smiley, listen to what they say. Christ's threefold office perfectly matches the needs created by sin. First, sin is refusal to hear the divine word and respond with faith and faithfulness with the consequences of foolishness and spiritual hardness toward God. This Christ heals by his prophetic word. And as you leave here today, Lord willing, my hope and my prayer is that you will go with five incentives amidst all of the noise to hear and obey this prophet who was like no other. Each of these motivations, each of these incentives will speak to us and they will say, listen to Christ our prophet. Listen to Christ our prophet. Listen to Christ our prophet. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, if you haven't turned there already, where we will see where these incentives come from. John chapter 1, so it's the fourth of the gospel accounts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, if you're somewhere there, keep going. You'll eventually hit John. If you find Acts, you've gone too far, just turn a little bit back and you'll find John's gospel. So John chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 18 verses. We're going to work through all of them, which is a lot for us to sink our teeth into, but they they hold together and uh, reveal wondrous truths about our Lord Jesus Christ, this final prophet to come. So John 1, I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 down to verse 18, but pray with me first before we read God's word together. Lord, thank you for speaking in these last days in the way that you have by your Son, who in these pages and in the rest of Scripture is revealed to us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to us now as we spend time with your word open before us to truly be given ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us as a church and as individuals. We thank you that John witnessed what he did, that he saw and he touched and he heard and he proclaimed these words of life to us, this Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we hear about him to truly listen and obey everything that he has said. Father, would you pour out your spirit upon us afresh, filling us with the greater measure both for preacher and hearer alike, so that our hearts and minds would be enthralled by this one who is before us. We know that you love your son and you have given all things into his hands. And so for his sake, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So listen then to what the Holy Spirit says. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was in high school, I used to spend quite a bit of time at a friend's house whose mother had a pretty uncluttered fridge, uh, and maybe on purpose so that the one fridge magnet that I remember would stand out to us whenever we sat and ate the food that she made for us in her kitchen. And it was a saying that you've probably heard in one way or another before, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Well, that's what we're met with in these opening words in the prologue, the introduction to John's gospel, and he certainly wastes no time, paper, or ink in making one. A first impression of Jesus that's intended to make a lasting, an everlasting impression upon us. Now, whenever we do meet someone for the first time, if you can think of that scenario in your mind, there are a number of different things that we pay attention to. We try and find out. One of those things is age. Now, adults are polite and they just kind of guess. They don't often come right out and ask. Boys and girls, you usually ask if you meet another kid, hey, how old are you? because you want to find out if they're older or younger than you are. And if you find out that they're the same age as you are, well, then you'll ask when their birthday is so that if you can get that, I'm 11 and a half or 11 and three quarters or 11 and three quarters in two days, uh, you'll find out who's the oldest. Now, eventually that will go away. Adults eventually just sort of measure their age in decades. Uh, I'm in my 40s or my 50s or my 60s. That just sort of goes away. One of the reasons that we focus on age is because it can reveal important information about whoever it is that is before us. John does that with Jesus, giving us our first incentive to listen to Christ our prophet, for Christ our prophet is the divine word. Look there in 1 verse 1 to see John write that Jesus has an attribute that only rightly belongs to God. In the beginning was the word, He was with God in the beginning. Jesus has existed from eternity past. He existed prior to creation. At the start of everything, Jesus was there. Before time, before space, before matter, before history began, the Word was. That's what John says. And to correct the ancient heretical line of Arius, there was not once when He was not. Now, paying further attention to the first impression that John creates for us, notice also that John gives us a name. He says that Christ our prophet is the Word. And the allusions 
to Genesis and Exodus in the introduction to John's gospel, and we'll get to some of them a little bit later. They're rich. The allusions to the rest of the Bible in the opening of John's gospel help us, they drive us to the scriptures to help us understand why John calls Jesus the word. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of things written about why John uses this term and people think about Greek philosophy and these types of things. But we can, I'm just going to skip all of that and go right to the scriptures. And we know that the word of God is overwhelmingly significant throughout the Bible. We know that God spoke into existence, light and life. We're going to see that in our series in Genesis next year, Lord willing. We know that the word of God cannot be divorced from his creating and saving activity and so knowing all of that, one of the most striking parallels that John could have drawn to develop the concept of Jesus as the Word may well be Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Listen to these familiar verses in light of John 1.1. 1, 1. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Jesus in John's gospel is the sent one. Sent forth not to accomplish creation as in Genesis 1, but the recreation of a new humanity to live in peace with one another and most amazingly to live in communion with the triune God. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15, the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3, is the personification of the Word of God and is rightly named so by the Apostle John. So we have his age, he's ageless. John calls him the Word, and along with those first impressions, we also learn about Christ, our divine prophet's association. Usually we can tell a great deal about people that we meet by the company that they keep. And the scriptures say, bad, com com uh, bad company corrupts good character. Well, John tells us about Jesus' associations, about the associations of our divine prophet, the divine word. It says there in verse 2 that he was who, with who? <laughs> he was with God in the beginning. And here we stand on holy ground. For in the revelation of God that unfolds here, we have a mystery laid before us. And uh, I, I was thinking this earlier this morning of, uh, I think it was John Knox who said that he, he, never, he never trembled in fear over the devil. But every time he got into the pulpit to preach the word of God, his knees knocked because of the task that was before him. And here we are standing on holy ground because there's a mystery being outlaid for us, a foundation being laid for us for a belief that we have as Christians, Trinitarian monotheism. Now that's a mouthful. Monotheism is simply the belief in one God. But we are Trinitarian monotheists. We believe that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, and there's only one God. This is what John is laying out before us as he speaks to us about Christ our prophet. Notice several observations. There's a distinction between the Word and God. The Word was with God. 
There's a personification of the word. This is no mere written word or spoken word, but a living, and as we shall see, incarnate word. But here, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes us back to peer into this great mystery, which is that of the communion of God the Father with God the Son from eternity past. The proximity of the Word to God reveals to us a great deal about the Word Himself. Now, if we take a step back for a minute and think about everything that the Old Testament teaches us about the character and nature of God, We already have in the first 39 books in the Bible, we already have a tremendous theology of God's power and His purity, His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His perfection. And over and over again, we are taught that as creatures, especially sinful creatures, draw near to God, that this is a frightful meeting. Even those angelic beings who constantly cry out about the holiness of God, what do they do? They cover their face and they cover their feet because they know their place. And this raises the question, what being then could get so close to God with any measure of intimacy and do so for all eternity? John tells us, Jesus, the divine word. And the implications of this should astound us as we consider the person of Jesus. He can see the face of God and live. He does not need, like Moses did, to be hidden in a cleft of a rock so that he can watch just the back of God's glory pass before him. No, he basks in the presence of it and has done for all eternity. He has the clean hands and pure heart required for ascending God's holy hill. He doesn't have to worry and search about where am I going to get the holiness without which no one can see the Lord because he himself is holy and all of this he has known eternally with the Father before the seed of the universe was even planted. And not only this, Jesus has shared in this glory himself. There's not only a distinction between the Word and God, there's also an equation of the Word with God as well. And though both of these assertions stretch the limits of our finite creaturely minds, the Bible affirms the truth of both of them. And one commentator writes the following, John intends that the whole of his gospel should be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. And if that's not true, then everything that John writes after this point is blasphemy. But it isn't. Christ, our prophet, is the divine word, the eternal second person of the Godhead who also has life in himself as the one through whom all things were made. And surely this is another indicator of the deity of the word. Verse 3 states one truth both positively and negatively. All things were made through him. Nothing that exists wasn't made, was not made through him. The Bible bears witness to this elsewhere, citing Colossians 1 again, all things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews 1 teaches that through the Son, God created the whole universe. So whether we're thinking on the macro scale of Canis Majoris, which is a star 155,000 times the size of this planet that we're on, or the tiny little quarks that make it up, which are 43 billion billionths of a centimeter, John is saying Jesus was present and active for and in the creation of all of it. And so naturally then, verse 1-4 speaks of his self-sufficiency or his aseity. As the Father has life in himself, 
so the Son also has life in himself. Neither the Father or the Son are dependent upon anything or anyone for their existence or the creation of life which the universe teems with. Jesus' capacity to create life ex nihilo out of nothing and then recreate life from the ashes of a self-destructive humanity is a message of hope that blazes across the darkness of humanity's fallen existence. And collectively, all of this communicates loudly and clearly, Christ our prophet is the divine word, and that is why we should listen to this life-giving light inextinguishable by the darkness of our fallen world, as verse 5 teaches us. Now, as John continues, the introduction of his gospel, this prologue, before further introductions are given to the main character, John does something a little strange on the surface. He introduces us to someone else, John the Baptist. He does that in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John? What do you tell me about John for? Tell me more about Jesus. I want to hear, what do you tell me about John for? Well, he goes on to say, He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Why does John tell us about John the Baptist? To teach us that the light shining in the darkness is not one that we should try to outshine. The main character of this story is Jesus. As you well know, every once in a while, there will be an anomaly in the sky during a solar eclipse where the moon goes rogue and gets in between us and the sun so that the light from the sun is blocked from our view. The light of the sun doesn't go out, but it is blocked from our sight. As witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do the same when we draw too little attention to him, or when we draw too much attention to ourselves, or when we give too much attention to others. John is saying that because of the greatness of this one that I'm telling you about, I'm introducing you to, the role of a witness is to get out of the way and make sure others are pointed to Christ. Later on, we read in John's gospel that when the time came for people to stop following John the Baptist and they started following Jesus, people came to John and said, what are you going to do about this, John? Like you're losing some, some credibility here. You're losing disciples. John looked at them and said, This is exactly what's supposed to happen. He must increase, I must decrease. John 3.30 tells us about this. We're supporting actors. Jesus is the main event. Every priest, every prophet, every king, including John the Baptist, is pointing forward to Christ because this divine word, he is the promised word, which is the second incentive for listening to him. He's not only the divine word, Christ our prophet is the promised word. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This was promised. When John the Baptist was arrested, as he was, and you know then he was eventually beheaded because of his uh, stance on uh, Christ and marriage and so on. When, when, uh, When this happened, Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew into Galilee and he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. He gives us these geographical markers, and perhaps you wonder why. Why do we have these details? Well, Matthew tells us, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 9, which says, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, 
And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Aren't those fitting words that still describe the day in which we live where people are in darkness and in the grip of the the fear of the shadow of death? A light has dawned. The promised word, he was the fulfillment of everything that we have in the Old Testament. He is the word that we need to hear and listen to. Every life, every microphone, every podcast, every social media platform should exist as an outlet for proclaiming the promised word, Christ our prophet, who reveals God to us. And so to that end, please pray for us as pastors that this would be our desire and nothing else. Pray that for yourself that you would be one. He would point to Christ and say, He is the promised word. Listen to Him. And pray that nothing we would do as a church would detract us from ensuring that this Jesus is the one who is exalted and lifted up in our midst so that others can see and hear and respond. Our role is secondary but it is not insignificant. John the Baptist was sent from God, we are told, to testify in advance about who Jesus was. And John's ministry would enable anyone who heard to believe in the coming Messiah. And this last Old Testament prophet, John, we are told was faithful in his calling. There's a beautiful summary of John's ministry in John 10, 42. It says that Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And you know what they said? They came and they said, John did no sign, no miracles, no fireworks, nothing extraordinary about the ministry of John the Baptist, this strange man who wore unusual clothing and had a very uh, 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 unusual diet nothing special about John and everything that he did. But they go on to say everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. When we speak the truth about Jesus in a way that draws others' attention to him and not to ourselves, that is being faithful, brothers and sisters. What does that look like? It means taking a stand for Jesus. Leon Morris notes the legal nuance of the term witness that is repeated in the the, the section of the, the introduction of John's gospel. He writes, witness establishes the truth, and it does more. It commits a person. He says, if I take my stand in the witness box and testify that such and such is the truth of the matter, I'm no longer neutral. I've committed myself. And so when we go on record When we go public, when we point to Jesus and say, Christ, our prophet, is the promised word, he's the divine word, listen to him, that is witnessing. And we do that on the occasion of our baptism. When we publicly identify with Christ, we are bearing witness that this is who he is. We do that also when we live for Jesus, despite the consequences that might come of what might people think Uh, what people might think of us and and do in response. We witness when we have conversations with others about Jesus and when we extend invitations for others to hear about Jesus. And as a church, we have some of those over this Christmas season, which I 
telescope that you've heard about and are planning to do something with. The light shining in the darkness is Christ, our prophet, the promised word, which is why we listen to him and tell others to listen to him also. And in doing so, it will become apparent in our generation, as it does in every generation, including the period of time when Christ walked upon the earth, it will become evident that Christ our prophet will show himself to be the defining word. He is the divine word, he is the promised word, and he is the defining word. As Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe believe in himself, by virtue of who he is and the truth that he proclaimed, he draws lines defining where people stand with respect to God and eternity and to himself. As John continues to write, shockingly, this true light shining in the darkness, which is life to us, is rejected by some. Look at, see that there in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John is setting his readers up for the hostility that Jesus would encounter over the course of his ministry. Now, all of this doesn't mean that people didn't know the facts about Jesus. Knowing in Scripture doesn't mean knowing the the details. Demons know a lot of details about God and about His beloved Son, but they don't know Him in any meaningful sense of the word. Likewise, we know lots of information about people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we know them. There's no relationship. Scandalously, even though people did have the facts about Jesus, even though people do have the facts about Jesus, they reject him. They want nothing to do with him. They reject the glorious light of the eternal universe-making, self-sustaining, life-giving, darkness-conquering God. This is a great evil. It's also a great tragedy. Perhaps at some point in your life you've seen the sitcom where you've got mom and dad and you've got, you know, the the teenagers. And eventually over the course of that family's life or that show, you'll see a a scene where, you know, mom and dad are out of the house and teenagers are out of the house and they're all in public and the teenagers with their friends and the mom and dad's out and mom and dad and teenager run into one another. And the teenager does everything that they can to avoid eye contact, to not get too close, to make sure that mom and dad don't come near because they don't want mom and dad to embarrass them in front of their friends. And meanwhile, mom and dad are perplexed because they, you know, gave birth to and raised and fed and clothed and provided for these kids. And, you know, they make sort of live it and it's sort of funny in the show and so on and so forth. How much the greater offense... when we turn our backs on the one that we were made through. And he was sent into the world for us. And he provided his own life in the place of our own. All of this happens. And some people quite literally turn their back on it and they want nothing to do with it. Why is this? Why would we reject the light that is said to overwhelm the darkness? Why this madness? Jesus tells us in John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment, he says. The light has come into the world, 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I'm not sure where you're at this morning, but is that your posture? Is there darkness that you would rather cling to than the life-giving light that Jesus would offer? This is a judgment, Jesus says, of your own heart and shows you just how much you truly are in need of him. And so turn from the darkness and turn to this light who alone can save you. Even though this is our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ, it's what makes the advent of him so remarkable. One commentator writes, when John tells us that God loves the world, far from being an endorsement of the world, it's a testimony of the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. The depth of depravity of this badness is captured here in the rejection of the light that shines in the darkness, the spurning of God's great love. And I would warn you, friend, do not do this any longer. And the picture does not have to be bleak. In fact, it's not all bleak. The light that shines in the darkness for all to see, a light that is not for us to eclipse, is, reje- is rejected by some, but it's received by others. Some do listen to Christ, our prophet. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And some of you know, I've said a few times, some of you know my own sort of background, my own family history, that I grew up in two blended families. My parents divorced when I was nine. And so on the one hand, I lived with uh, mom and stepdad and and, uh, a half-brother, although I don't think of him that way. And then on the other side, I have a dad, a stepmom, and a half-sister, although I certainly don't think of her that way either, as half. Living in a house with an adult who is not your parent is challenging for everyone. I thought it was hard. I'm sure they thought it was hard too. But there's also potential for something special to come from such a, a difficult situation. And I'm reminded of this every time I go to uh, my dad and my stepmom, every time I go to their house and I walk through the front door, I'm reminded of this every time my stepmom greets me and she says, hi, son. And similarly, my stepdad is known as grandpa to my children. Or just yesterday, our one-year-old, we were talking about him. It was his, my, my stepdad's birthday this week, and we were talking about uh, him to our one-year-old, and he was beginning to form his words, and he, Papa, Papa, he said. In my stepdad's eyes, they're his grandkids. That's how he thinks of them. And perhaps someone has said to you that they think of you as a son or a daughter, even though you're not biologically related. Perhaps you've lovingly bestowed that honor on someone else, to be a close family friend, to be the spouse of one of your children. And this person has become such a part of your life and your family that really that's the only fitting way to describe their relationship. What's so remarkable here is that Jesus, the defining word, is the one, if we come to him, he says, he gives us the right to be children of God. We are granted this undeserved honor when we receive Jesus, when we believe in his name, when we entrust ourselves to him, when we enter a personal relationship with him. He gives us the right to be called a son or daughter of the most high God and in 
response. We can cry out with that term of endearment, Abba, Father. Do you know this love? Do you know this grace? Do you know this care? Have you experienced this joy in your own life? We can by running into the light who is Christ who has broken over the horizon of our sinful darkness and opens up our eyes so that we can bask in the warmth of God's love that overwhelms us in its glory and its wonder. This is an incredible gift that we are given to become a child of God. And it's one that God, a work that God does for us. He is the one who draws people to Jesus by the Holy Spirit to receive him and be born again. The right to become a child of God isn't passed down naturally from Christian parent to their children. It's not by blood, verse 13 tells us. There's no family or friends discount in the kingdom of God. Each one must receive Jesus, must believe in his name because he is the defining word. He's the one who determines whether or not we are children of God or we remain children of wrath. This is not a right that we can either earn by accomplishment. It's not by the flesh. The flesh counts for nothing, Jesus says, when it comes to being born into the family of God. And neither can the right to become a child of God be achieved by determination, by the will of man, as that we could blaze our own trail to God, or we could blaze a trail for someone else to have a relationship with God. There's only one way, and it's to receive this Jesus, this divine and uh, unparalleled prophet. Believe in his name to receive Jesus. These mean accepting the truth of who Jesus is in your own life. And then and only then are we enlightened by Christ, our prophet, waking up to know Christ shining on us, to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the defining word who determines all of this. And in addition to this remarkable offer that is ours through Jesus, what makes Christ our prophet so compelling to heed is what John also tells us about him in John 1.14. We listen to Christ our prophet because he is the divine word, he is the promised word, he is the defining word, and because he is the incarnate word. Living under the shadow of darkness and death that we could not escape from, blind and deaf, in our self-inflicted sinful stupor, in this global echo chamber where no one in it can say anything that can save us, someone comes from outside of it and enters in. And we see that there. It's remarkable. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John Murray says the thought of the incarnation is stupendous. Wayne Grudem adds, listen to this, the fact that the infinite omnipresent, eternal Son of God would become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God become one person with finite men will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in the universe. The Word became flesh. Jesus is truly God, John says. He is our, Christ our prophet is the divine word. Jesus, John continues, is also truly man. Christ our prophet is the incarnate word. And in the original language, these two terms are side by side. Word, flesh, became. Three words. 
And that John uses flesh rather than, say, man, communicates to us the fullness of Jesus' humanity. Jesus wasn't a divine avatar. He didn't put on a human skin and then walk around uh, as to sort of disguise himself in that regard, in that way. He didn't appear to be a man. He became an actual man. 100% human, 100% God, two natures, one person, mind-blowing. One of my favorite modern poets puts it this way. Listen to how he writes it. By faith, we believe this amazing Jesus who made Uranus and Venus became a fetus. It was such a secret that, if, that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the gospel's praise of the apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils? Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness. Super sweetness and peace for the true believers. See the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Which one can explain how the son, abundant with fame, who made thunder and rain, now has hunger pains? See the creator of water become thirsty on the cross when he saves from the slaughter the unworthy. My awe should be sky high, and I ought to just cry, why, with water in my eyes when the author of life dies? Raised on the third day, God, man, soul seeker, the hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. I wish I could actually properly fully tell you about it. I'm at a loss. And the wonder only increases in the following few words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word tabernacled among us, which is like alarm bells going off on our head. Tabernacle. What does that make us think about? That makes us think about the Exodus. The word pitched his tent in humanity's backyard. He came so close to us that we could be close to him. You've probably had the experience of, uh, of going to a, a sporting event or a concert or something like that, although not in 2020. Maybe at the beginning of the year you did, but not this year. But you've maybe cheaped out on some tickets because you just wanted to get in the door last minute. You've sat up and the, the nose bleeds, and there you are, and everything's playing out in front of you, and you can't help, as you look down, be a little bit jealous of the people who are sitting right behind home plate or right up against the glass or at the 50-yard line or courtside or they've got, you know, you can see the people with the backstage passes at the concert and they're right there up in the action and you wish that you could get that close and personal. And right now we're all on our couches so no one's getting close. And I wonder how often we think we'll never get closer than the nose bleeds to God. I wonder how often we think that God never intends for us to get that close. He's just always going to be out of reach. He's too good for me, too good for you. Friends, the wonder of the incarnation shows us that this is not true. The eternal word has entered our world so that we could enter the world to come and in the meantime have relationship with God such that he is our father and we are his children. And the scriptures have always pointed us in this direction. God revealed his glory to Adam and Eve in the garden. God revealed his glory to the Israelites in the tent of meeting in the wilderness. 
God revealed his glory in the temple when it was dedicated in the promised land when he settled into it. God revealed his glory in the person of Jesus when the word came, became flesh. And God will reveal his glory to all who receive his son in the new heavens and the new earth. And John later on tells us in a different book of the Bible just how close we'll get. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. How close? How intimate of a relationship does God intend to have with us, his creatures? A face-to-face one. That's what the wonder of the incarnation assures us of and secures for us. And that Christ, our prophet, is the incarnate word, gives us every incentive to actually listen to what he says. And in coming to us, we have a fifth incentive for listening to him. First, we listen to him because Christ, our prophet, is the divine word. Second, he is the promised word. Third, he is the defining word. Fourth, he is the incarnate word. And fifth, he is the final word. He is the last word. God has spoken in these last days by his son. He is the end of it all. He is the final word with respect to glory. John writes in the latter half of verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John is tying quite the theological bow with some awesome Old Testament threads here because whenever we read about God dwelling in the midst of his people, we're confronted with the astonishing displays of his glory. And when we read about God filling the tent, the tabernacle, at the end of Exodus with his glory, do you know what we realize? We read Moses couldn't even go in. The mediator, Moses, the one who went up on the mountain, yeah, he's not going into that place with the glory of God descended upon it. And when the temple was dedicated uh, uh, and the glory of God filled the temple, the priests couldn't go into the temple. The glory of God was manifest in such an incredible way. And yet that pales in comparison to what we read here about the Lord Jesus Christ. When Moses was permitted to observe the back of God's glory, as I referenced earlier in Exodus 34, 5, and 7, this is what we read. And this is a key text for John in John's mind as he's writing this, uh, this introduction to the gospel. Listen to what Moses saw and heard. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now with that in mind, look back again at what it says about the incarnate word who tabernacled among us, his glory is the glory of one full of grace and truth. Akin to the steadfast love that God declares before Moses and his truth and justice and righteousness, Christ our prophet is the one who makes this fully and finally known. And that's why he is the final word. 
Christ our prophet is also the final word with respect to his rank. John 1.15, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This is, was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, and that kind of sort of proves true in life as well, like if you're older and you were there first, then you've got the superior rank. Not so here. Jesus outranks John, even though, humanly speaking, John came first. And that's because Jesus has always existed. The same is true with regards to Moses and Jesus. Jesus outranks Moses, and Moses knew that he would. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, God will raise up a prophet from among your brothers. What are you supposed to do with him? You're supposed to listen to him. This prophet is Christ. John goes on in verses 16 and 17, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace of God as seen in the giving of the law, and it was grace. The Ten Commandments begin, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It's deliverance and then law. The giving of the law, uh, in the, uh, the grace of God seen in the giving of the law has been fulfilled by Jesus and in its place, a new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus, grace and truth. From the fullness of Jesus' glory, we have all received grace upon grace or grace in the place of grace. Jesus has come to do what we could never do on our own, which was to bring us to God. And so he is the final word. And unlike all the other religions of the world that cause us to break our backs, this one in in Christianity, God has come to save us. That's why I believe it's the only true one. We have received grace in place of grace, grace upon grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's the final word with respect to his glory. He's the final word with respect to his rank. And he's the final word with respect to his revelation. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is what the divine word, the promised word, the defining word, the incarnate word, the final word reveals to us. He reveals to us God Himself. And I'm leaning on the the observations of another to highlight this. Look at the connection between verse 1 and verse 18. There are parallels there. The theme, of God, uh, the theme of the word as the ultimate disclosure of God himself is dramatically reinforced by these parallels. We see in verse 18, it might not be this way unless, and maybe in a footnote in your, your translation, but Jesus was with the Father. He was in the bosom of the Father. He was on the fa- in the Father's lap. Like He can't get any closer than this. This one was with God, verse 1. The unique one, himself God, This is the one who was God in verse 1. And so we see these parallels that exist between verse 1 and verse 18. And John is putting everything in between it. And all that to say that this person has made God known. He is the Word. He is God's self-expression. It was a word that we use as, as preachers, as pastors. We talk about exegeting Scripture. And you do this as well when you study God's Word. To exegete scripture, to engage in exegesis, is to bring the truth of the Bible out and lay it in front of people so that it's clear. We don't want to read anything into the scriptures. We want to read the truth out of the scriptures. That's exegesis. 
Jesus is described as doing that very task of God. Jesus exegetes God. He is God. He is the narrator of God. Jesus' words are God's words. Jesus' acts are God's acts. His power is God's power. His love is God's love. His compassion is God's compassion. His forgiveness is God's forgiveness. His grace is God's grace. His glory is God's glory. Christ alone has seen and fellowshiped and known God so that He alone can make Him known to us. And that is why He is the final word, and that is why we should listen to Him. As the divine word, Christ our prophet is to be worshipped. As the promised word, Christ our prophet is to be proclaimed. As the defining word, Christ our prophet is to, be, is to be believed. As the incarnate word, Christ our prophet is to be embraced. As the final word, Christ our prophet is to be heeded. And so amidst all of the chatter, all of the noise, all of the voices that are vying for our attention amidst the constant conversation that goes on inside of us, there is one voice that should sound louder than all the others. One voice that corrects all error. One voice that reveals all truth. One voice that assuages all fears. One voice that assures through all doubts. One voice that pardons of all sin. One voice that imparts all courage. One voice that stills all fears. One voice that commands all allegiance. The Word, Christ, our prophet. And as God the Father proclaimed, when the Spirit descended upon the Lord Jesus Christ at His baptism, He said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, this eternally begotten, not made, incarnate Word sent to be the prophet of prophets, the priest of priests, the King of kings. Forgive us, Lord, those times when his voice is not the one that we we pay heed to. Forgive us when we would exalt the words or thoughts of a mere creature over this one through whom all things were made. Forgive us, Lord, when we ignore what he says. Forgive us when we doubt what he has revealed to us about you and your character and your love and goodness to us. Forgive us when we don't listen to him and we soften your holiness and your justice and righteousness. Forgive us, Lord, when his voice does not thunder in our minds such that we desperately long for others to hear and obey it also. Forgive us, Lord, for these. And turn us again so that we would listen and believe him and do everything that he says and so prove to be his disciples. We pray for any who are here this morning who are not Christians that you would so work in their hearts to be compelled to believe that these indeed are all and more the incentives that we require to listen and trust in your Son. So Lord, help them to confess and believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. 
And help us, Lord, as a church to proclaim him, especially in this season, especially, Lord, when life has been such a challenge for us. I pray, Lord, that we would point to him who has shone into the darkness for those who live in the shadow and in the shadow of death. Use us, Lord, we pray, to make much of Christ our prophet. Help us to listen and obey him, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.